Good morning, everyone. I'm so glad you're here. I, I want us to finish out the series um, in, a, in a way that we're actually going to do something different. We're actually going to begin this time of teaching and preaching to you by taking the Lord's Supper instead of finishing with the Lord's Supper. I could think of no better way for us to understand what self-concept is, a self-concept that's rooted in the grace of God, than for us to, to begin this last bit of conversation based around our identity when we really bring the focal point to the finished work of the cross, knowing that, that our value and our worth to God was, is so immense that Jesus died on the cross for us, paying a debt that, that we deserved to have to pay for ourselves, and yet he paid our debt to give a Christian the opportunity for their sins to be wiped clean and for us to live the abundant life or live the eternal life of what we're going to see in this passage. So I invite you to, to now that everyone has, uh, now that everyone has the elements, I just invite you to take the bread. If you are a follower of Jesus and you're good standing with the Lord and good in standing with the church, I just, I just want you to, to stop for a moment and just to, to sink in the reality that you are worth so much to God that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for you. Take the bread and eat. Take the juice and drink. Father, we come to you today and we're so grateful that you had a master plan and that in your master plan was to send your son Jesus, who himself God, but yet he humiliated himself becoming a man to die for sinners. So Lord, after this and following his death, we know that he resurrected, proving to us and to them that he indeed is God. Amazing hundreds of people of Jesus as he was now walking post-resurrection just like he had pre-crucifixion, seeing people, hundreds of people, confounding the mind, stirring up faith and hope and mystery and beauty and just the treasure of the gospel being fulfilled in him. So Lord, allow us to have that word to sink deeply into us. And as we talk about self-concept, Lord, I just ask that you would just send the Holy Spirit right now, that you would send the Holy Spirit, that this would be such a thin space, that we would be thin spaces, that you would be able to pierce through our intellect, our trauma, our stubbornness, our rebellion, our legalism, if there's any in us. God, that your gospel would pierce through, that we would be able to see and experience the true beauty that is you and that is the love that you have for us. We glorify your holy name, Jesus. This is all for you, to give you glory. And then out of that, bring good into the world, which brings you more glory. Amen. Amen. 
Well, you know, this, this series is, is really one that's interesting because although we have been here for four weeks, we're certainly just scratching the surface on what all of this is, and, and yet we have some other important things that we're going to cover in starting next week in a new series, which would be our Easter series. But I just want you to know that although we've talked about these things at a, at a deeper level than probably what you've ever heard, and some of this is even going to come through today, I want you to know that, that although the messages may be ending as far as labels and the series is going to be ending, I want you to know that it is, it is your job and my job to commit ourselves daily to the Holy Spirit of God because the Holy Spirit of God will wash the Word of God over us to reveal to us deeper and deeper what it means to be a child of God and ultimately what that means for us. You see, labels is what we've been talking about, and I began the series talking about this, that labels are are what you call yourself in your head. They're, They're the thing that you call yourself in your head, but nobody else hears it. Every once in a while, you'll say something that may be self-defeating or maybe it is, it is good about you, but it's these little mantras, these little sayings that exist in our head. They're the tags that we attach to ourselves to describe the person that you think you are or the person you want to become. So there, there, there's these little tags, and sometimes we try and apply a tag to us, but it just doesn't stick because of our sin nature. And then sometimes we just have to go through, we have these tags on us, and we have to try and rip them off because of our sin nature. And I want you to know that it is the Holy Spirit of God. We've talked about some psychological things. We've talked about some sociological effects of this, but I just want you to know this. I trust in the living God, and I believe that God has has caused uh, us to be so dependent on Him that we can't look just simply for a social science for the answer of what ills us. Amen? And yet God provided social sciences. He provides a way for us to learn more about ourselves, but at the same time, and even more so, being dependent on Him and not on our our self-work. Because what did we talk about last week? Self-work does not equal what? Self-worth. So this isn't a matter of us just doing all these things for ourselves. It's committing our way to Jesus Christ, abiding in Him, being trained up in, right, in, in, in the righteous way, in the way that He talked about living. Eugene Peterson, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, it's the last time you'll hear this quote anyway for now, but I've started every one of these messages out with this quote, and it's just so beautiful. It just creates a really a landscape, just a goal for us to pursue and some things for us to understand about ourselves. that God hasn't invited us into a disorderly, unkept life, but into something that's holy and beautiful. Through my years of ministry, I've seen so many people who live disorderly or unkept lives, and what you see on the outside is just a picture of what's going on on the inside. God called you to something more beautiful than that. It's beautiful, just as Peterson says, on the inside and on the outside. You see, there's, there's a challenge that we face when it comes to being followers of Jesus, and it's a challenge, ultimately, that, that there's a lawyer who faced in Luke chapter 10. I invite you to go into your Bible, starting at verse 25. And it's a challenge that all of us face from time to time. Now, I don't believe that the lawyer here is, is a follower of Jesus at all. As a matter of fact, hey, this lawyer, he asks Jesus these questions because a lawyer only asks questions that he thinks he knows the answers to. A good lawyer will ask questions 
thinking that, oh, leading the discussion, if I ask you this question, I can predict that you're going to say this, and he's looking for a way to make himself look better. But there's something here for us, too, because what we're going to see in the life of this lawyer is something that we do ourselves. A way that we live, in a way that we, we want to be perceived, in a way that we project who we are. We'll see what that is in just a moment. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what is written in the law? How do you read it? The expert in the law answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus replies, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, he came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to the inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Jesus says this. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. So we have this expert in the law who is trying to justify himself. His knowledge of the law for him and knowing certain facts about the Bible made him think that he was good with God. He asked Jesus these questions because he believed that he was good with God and he simply wanted Jesus to say, attaboy, yeah, you're doing it right. Go get him, kid. But that's not what happens at all. As a matter of fact, Jesus turns it around and and what he says to him by way of this story of which a Samaritan is is the hero, but of course the Jews and Samaritans were were enemies of one another. And notice in verse 37, the way that the expert and the law responded, talking about the Samaritan. He didn't even say, didn't even give the, the dignity of saying it was a Samaritan. It says, the one who had mercy on him. So for us, when we get into this concept of self-concept, it's more than something we think about ourselves. Because a theology of self-concept also produces a theology of service. And a theology of generosity. And a theology of justice. 
and a theology of community. This expert in the law didn't understand this. He thought it was just a matter of of just knowing some facts. And if he knew the facts, then he was good. And yet there was an indictment said about him, and perhaps it's true of us, that he simply wanted to justify himself. In other words, it was about him. And Jesus turns all that around. And he uses this example of mercy. Because a theology of self-concept also produces a theology of service. That your identity in Christ is, is also shaped by what you do and how you participate in the world. How you serve the world around you. How generous you are with those around you. How you are somebody who is, is leaning into justice in the world around you. And as you lean into community because those of us who have a self-concept that's rooted in the grace of God of which that the grace of God is a mirror, we have nothing to hide from one another. Oh, church, it would be wonderful if you stopped hiding. It would be wonderful if you stopped hiding, if you actually stepped beyond your false self, you faced the fear, trusted it, trusted the Spirit of God to invade you to the core of you where you don't simply try and justify yourself with random facts and knowledge and exegeting text and attending Bible studies, and yet you allow the Holy Spirit of God to wash you clean stop pretending somebody stop pretending stop being reclusive in the in the community of God there's way too much potential that you have in the world for you to be reclusive for you to think that your walk with God and your identity with Christ is just about you this expert in the law he thought it was about him oh how righteous he had to have thought he was That he knew the facts. He knew the first and second greatest commandment. Oh, feather in my cap. Everything's great. Except it wasn't great. And Jesus exposed that. May the Holy Spirit of God expose your weakness today. May the Holy Spirit of God expose your weakness and also reveal to you the power of the gospel to set you free from those lies. May the power of the Holy Spirit invade you beyond your intellect and prick your heart so it rips your heart open so you can really and truly give it to God and stop pretending. This idea of pretending, this expert in the law, he thought he knew himself. He was testing Jesus. And yet here's what Jesus knew. I'll use this quote from William James to help prove to you what Jesus knew. And you just, because we've read it, we know how Jesus navigated the conversation. William James said it in this way. He says, whenever two people meet, there are really six people present. There is each person as he sees himself, each person as the other person sees him, and each person as he really is. This is so clear when you look at at this expert in the law because he was into perception management. He wanted to be perceived as being smart, as perceived as being this great intellectual, perceived as being this spiritual person because he had remembered a couple facts and because he was an expert in the law. You see, perception management 
is making yourself appear a certain way, but that's not the real you. Perception management is it's trying to control how other people perceive you, but that's not the real you. The beauty of gospel community is that the grace of God has been a mirror to expose the real you, and as God has exposed the real you, you start to realize that God has exposed the mirror to the real you of everybody else in community, so we have nothing to hide. We have no one to hide from because we're family now. This expert in the law, he was trying to pursue some sort of perception management. We do this when we become overly concerned with how people see us or, or we become overly concerned and we allow people to place a value on us. We do this when we behave differently when we're around a different crowd. This is perception management. This perhaps is you when you go to work and on Sunday you're singing your heart out but yet on Monday the people around you can't tell if you're a follower of Jesus or not. Because your life is, is maybe 5% different than theirs, and yet that's not enough to make a difference. So they're not really interested in your faith because your life looks like theirs. All the while, it's perception management. Because you're simply behaving to be liked or to be known and not to make Christ revealed in your life. It's also when we, when we have an issue and we... we perpetually try to get people on our side and, and have some sort of confirmation bias about maybe something that we're doing. Maybe we know that we're living in sin and yet we're not gonna go to our, to our truth friends. We're gonna go to the people who we think are gonna give us validation for the sin that we're living in. So we don't go talk to the truth person because that truth person's gonna say what? Brother, sister, I love you. Don't go down this path. This is gonna be bad for you. But yet we go to our other sinful friends or other sinful friends say, well, you do you, just follow your heart. This is perception management. This is not letting the grace of God be the display of your life. This is you creating this alter ego to be liked by other people. Perception management cannot build a healthy self-concept. It can't. It can't. As long as you're trying to manicure your life and you're trying to project a certain image that's not you, that is never going to have a healthy outcome. God wants so much more for you. This expert in the law, he thought he had it all figured out. He thought he had it all figured out. Perception management is information warfare. Perception management is information warfare. Here's what I mean. John 8, 44 says this. Talking about Satan, he says, He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Perception management is information warfare. And yet, we see this great battle that's happening in our world today, of which Jesus talks about in this passage talking about the father of lies, that he's a murderer. He, not, he doesn't hold to the truth because there's no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. 
So every time that we try and pretend to be liked by somebody else or we try and create this type of persona because of everybody else or someone else that's around us or we have some sort of perception management, we are actually playing right into the father of lies. When we decide, ah, my sin is too, is too bad, I can't, reveal, I can't reveal what's going on in my heart when I'm in gospel community. I can't reveal to that. What we're doing is, this is information warfare, and you're actually believing the lie of the evil one. Where the gospel community should be the place, and it is the place where you should be able to talk about people within this community about anything. Knowing that you will not be judged simply because you said it. But yet, if there's sin involved, that, that there will be some, some words about that sin, but also some encouragement to help you get out of it. The lawyer, he was drawing on two particular passages. He was drawing on Deuteronomy 6, 5, and also Leviticus 19, 18. And these are he was trying to use them as a basis of doing and not receiving. And I think when it comes into self-concept, one of the reasons why that we really have a slow grasp at this, why it's, it's slow for us to be able to really understand and appreciate the love of God in a way that, that goes well beyond our intellect and sinks down into our heart is because we need to let ourselves be loved by God. Because that's more important than just loving God. Here's what I mean, using the words of Brennan Manning. When we let ourselves be loved by God, we put our guard down. We put our ego down. We, where our pride is gone. And yet, if it's just a matter of us loving God, that's our, that's our giving and not receiving. And that's easier. That's easier. It's easier to to project an image, well, I love God. But it's more difficult because sin has impacted every one of us. It's more difficult for us to actually believe and receive the love of God. Who can give testimony to this? Say amen. This is the reason why I've had conversations over the years where people say, I just, you know, I know what God's word says about me, but I just simply can't believe it. And yet at the same time, they say, yes, I love God. Because it's easier to project that and give that than it is to receive that. And, and I want to go into this further and maybe to explain to you why. You see, we know that God is worthy of love, don't we? We know that God is worthy of love. So that comes easy. Of course, we project, oh, I love God because God is worthy of love because God because Jesus, because the cross, because the resurrection, because of the church, because of the community, because of Old Testament, because of the New Testament, because of creation, because of the being made in the image of God, because of, of the rapture, uh, because of what's gonna happen in Revelation 22 when he's making all things new and there's a new heaven and a new earth and, and if we live in a garden city or whatever that looks like and all of that and we look at that and we just can get overwhelmed by all those facts and all of those, those things that sink deep into us because we know that God is worthy of love. You see, God is love. But our sin nature toils and tries to convince us 
that we are unworthy of that kind of love. God is love. It's easy for us to say, yes, I love God and project that image. Whether or not we do or not, we can say it even without believing it. The very nature of God is love. But our sin nature toils and tries to convince us, i.e. the father of lies, i.e. John 8, which I just read to you just a couple of moments ago. But all the while, it's to try and convince us that we are unworthy of that kind of love. I'll illustrate this in a different way. Early in, in Jesus' earthly life, the baptism of Jesus, of his earthly ministry, we see this in, in Matthew three sixteen through 17. I want you to know, this wasn't based off what Jesus had done because there had been no great miracles. There had been no amazing things that had happened on earth. It wasn't, he hadn't fed the 5,000 and he hadn't, you know, healed all these people and hadn't had all these great teachings. This is, this is basically launching his, his earthly ministry. But follow this, these two verses, incredibly true and life-giving. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and, and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, notice these words, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. It wasn't that Jesus had performed to get this love. Jesus just had the love. You, brothers and sisters in Christ, you don't need to perform to get the love of God. You just receive it. The only performance, if you will, and I don't really like the word, but I've used it earlier, so I'm going to continue it. The only, the only performance, if you will, the only thing that had to be performed for you to, to truly experience the love of God is the finished work of the cross. And that's been done. We're not hanging more people on the cross to verify that, you know, that, that they're good enough to be saved or to, that they will die for the cause. Jesus did that once for all. I'll illustrate it further. I, I invite you to go into the Word of God. Go to the right in your Bible to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1, says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air and the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you've been saved. You see, this, this lawyer, he was trying to justify himself. He was trying to justify himself. 
When, when you and I try to justify ourselves, we make everyone a rival. Because if I'm trying to justify myself, if I'm trying to be right with God based off of my good deeds, the first thing I'm going to do is look at other people's lives and I'm going to compare my life to your life. And if my life looks better than yours, which coincidentally, if you're following through that, I'm not going to find somebody who's, who's just terrifically moral. I'm going to find somebody who's immoral, therefore to try and justify myself to make me look better. Just how it works. Many of us, we live in a day and age where we've, we've mistaken who our rivals are. We, we think our rivals are a presidential candidate or a president who leaves office or a political party or a certain part of the country. I mean, even, even the founding of our country was based off the idea of a rival, was it not? Great Britain was our, our great rival, pro- proclaiming freedom. And through the years, we've had other great rivals. And it seems like it's just woven through the American DNA to where it's like we have to look for a rival. And we've done that through the span of years. We've had some great rivals with with Germany a couple times. Japan for a time. Russia for a time. China for a time. And now we're, we're rivaling one another. And we simply don't know what to do. It's because in one way or the other, maybe it's not because it's a, a pursuit of salvation, although if you were to actually study out the Marxist philosophies that are, that are all throughout our society right now, that's the core idea that's, that's being perpetuated to make us rivals. Do you see this? But our enemy is not some Marxist Ideal, our enemy is actually right here in this passage we just read. There's three enemies, actually, right here in this passage. Verse 2 says this. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. So there is a world system. There's one enemy. And the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Which is what? Satan. And also... The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And guess what that is? The flesh. These are our enemies. These are our enemies. It's Satan himself. It's a world system that opposes our message. And also the flesh that seeks to have us hide from God and from our, for our God-given purpose. To live for his glory and to bring good into the world see we have rivals all over the place not only do we have in those areas that i've said we also have rivals in sports and we love rivals in sports don't we some of us who are sports people anyone any sports people i grew up a st louis cardinal fan and our rival was the cubs still is the cubs still don't like the cubs Who's a Braves fan? Anyone Anyone throughout the years? I notice there's not a whole lot of hands going up, and you're like, you're doing one of these numbers. I'm like, you don't have T-Rex arms, people. Lift your hands up. There you go. Who's the rival of the Braves? It's interesting. It's the pitching staff, actually. It is. <laughs> it's the pitching staff. It's the Braves. Yeah. It's true. It's true. You see, we, we, 
we have to be able to go through and navigate our life. At times, we, we celebrate rivals, and it's, and it's kind of fun to do so, and yet we have to make sure that we don't have like a rival spirit that, that always pits us against somebody else. That's what this lawyer is trying to do. He's trying to pit himself against Jesus. And he wants, he's trying to bait Jesus in. He's trying to say, hey, look at me. But he was only doing it to try and justify himself. Benjamin Franklin, I found this quote, just rocked my world. It's gonna rock yours too. Benjamin Franklin says this, he who falls in love with himself will have no rivals. He who falls in love with himself will have no rivals. Wow. I'm not competing against you. I'm not trying to justify myself against you. I don't, I don't need a rival to become who it is that God wants me to be. I've got God. And the Holy Spirit of God reveals to me who it is that he wants me to be. Consequently, I also know that I do have a, a, a grand rival in three parts that we just read starting in verse two of Ephesians two. There's a whole system that, that opposes us. There's this grand enemy, capital E, Satan, who opposes us. And there's the flesh inside of us. You see, talking about justifying himself, if we do this, if a person seeks to justify themselves, they continually to try, they have to do this. They have to continually try and find either a doctrine. Okay, there's this bit of theological doctrine. I'm going to prove myself because I know these facts. I can, I can put together a beautiful systematic theology and therefore I'm really smart. I've got, I've got everything taken care of. Everything lines up. All my theology. Got no holes in my theology game. They also need an opponent or a good deed to become or keep themselves justified. This is the imposter self. This is the flesh of which the Apostle Paul is talking about in Ephesians 2. This, this wrong belief that I have to justify myself, I have to prove myself, I have to find a doctrine, a certain way to think and live to prove that God is, that, that I am good with God. And if we could do this, then Paul certainly should have been able to. I invite you to go to the right, one book in your Bible, and I want to read very quickly. We look at an example of someone, the Apostle Paul, who, who could have tried to use this to justify himself. I mean, if anyone outside of Jesus could have justified himself, wouldn't it have been the Apostle Paul? Wouldn't it have been? I mean, to look at his credentials. And now we're going to read his credentials. And here's the amazing thing about these credentials. Although these incredible credentials are here, he counted it is being nothing. Nothing, no way of, of saving himself or being right with God apart from the grace of God. And this becomes his self-concept. Philippians 3, 4 through 11. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. 
circumcised on the eighth day and of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my prophet, I now consider loss for the sake of, what's the next word? Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. And so, somehow, to attain the resurrection from the dead. So he gives all of his, his legalistic credentials. And what does he say about them? They're, they're trash, they're rubbish, worth nothing. And he says, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Oh, if you're listening today, I want you to know that this is true. That all of your efforts to save yourself and justify yourself and uh, perception manage yourself and project a certain image about yourself and all the protecting from other people. Oh, God has so much more in store for you. That you may, you may lay all those things aside and that you may gain Christ. Because when you gain Christ, you gain something that is so much deeper than some intellectual pursuit. You gain so much, something that's so much deeper than how you can tie together all of your little doctrines. So much deeper than becoming a good little Bible study girl or boy. You become so much deeper and so much more fulfilling that your life, instead of being about you, it becomes about the world because Jesus was about the world. That your self-concept, it doesn't just reside between your ears pinging back and forth, being so consumed with yourself, but instead it is a, it's an outflow of your heart because your heart has been set free. Because you no longer are listening to the Father of lies. Instead, you have the Holy Spirit as your counselor telling you what is true. That is the power of God. That is only the power of God. That is only the power of God. There's no guru. There's no certain doctrine. There's no certain denomination. There's, there's no self-help book that's going to unlock all the secrets of life. It's the Spirit of God. And only the Spirit of God. Now sure, can those, some of those things be valuable? Of course. but only in the hands of God. Only in the hands of God. I love in this passage how Jesus willingly took the bait. He knew exactly what's going to happen. It isn't like Jesus was stumped like, oh no, here's this expert in the law. He's got, this, he's got these questions. How am I going to answer? Of course, Jesus isn't cynical like I'm being cynical. 
But I do this to prove the point that, that Jesus took the bait knowing what Jesus was going to say and also knowing that he was trying to justify himself. You see, when you look at this, let's read starting in verse 30, our original passage in Luke 10. Let's finish out the sermon with a couple ideas from this. After he wanted to justify himself, Jesus asked him, and who is my neighbor? Or excuse me, he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Very dangerous road, by the way. A drop in over 3,000 feet of elevation. But he's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, a Levite would be somebody who would assist the priest. When he came to the place and he saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, the person that no one expected, Mercy came from somebody that nobody expected. And as he traveled, he came to where the man was. When he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. When he put the man on his own donkey, he took him to the inn and he took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him and... Uh, look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers, Jesus said. The expert in the law says, well, the one who had mercy on him, go and do likewise. You know, this is, this is an amazing stuff because in this story, we are the people who need bandaging, we are the people who are on the side of the road beaten down. That's us. You're not the Samaritan. You're not the unexpected hero. That's Jesus. We're the people on the side of the road. Ah, I could go so many places with this and just talk about how religion doesn't save, but relationship with Jesus saves. Because the priest and the Levite, they walk right by. Nothing to see here. Just another man on, on a dangerous road. Probably deserved it. Kept walking by. But yet the Samaritan, it's Jesus, is the hero and all of us are along the same, we're along the side of the road too. Waiting for somebody to help us. Waiting for somebody to bandage our wounds. Waiting for somebody to be patient with us while we are in the process of healing waiting for, for somebody to extend to us the grace and allow us to, to put us up for the night, to offer some hospitality, somebody to extend some grace to us, somebody to look after us, somebody who cares about us, somebody who sees us, ultimately somebody who loves us. See, Christianity is very unique in this regard. There's a lot of ways it's unique, but it's, it's really unique in this regard. Christianity is the only faith where enemies, enemies become friends, friends become family, and their father is perfect. I'll say it again. 
Christianity is the only faith where enemies become friends, friends become family, and their father is perfect. This is amazing. This is such good news. That means it doesn't matter where you were in your class ranking in high school, that you're accepted in the family. It doesn't matter how much brokenness you've had in the past, you're accepted in the family. It doesn't, it doesn't matter all the things, that, all the knowledge you have. It, it just doesn't, it doesn't truly matter in this regard. It doesn't really matter because enemies become friends, friends become family, and their father is perfect. Let's be honest. Isn't this the family that we've been looking for our whole lives? I mean, I didn't grow up with this. You weren't raised by Jesus, so you didn't have this either, so I can just answer the question for you. Brennan Manning, one more time, he said this, God loves you unconditionally as you are, not as you should be, because nobody is as they should be. Beautifully portrayed in Jesus telling this story, the Samaritan, patiently waiting for the man who's, who's hurting Samaritan Jesus gives pity, compassion. He goes to him, not neglecting him. He bandages wounds. He gets close, pouring on oil and wine. One is a disinfectant and another one is a healing ointment. Then he put the man on his own donkey. He took him to the inn and took care of him. So now this isn't just throwing some money Throwing some money at a cause, be like, yeah, I gave $5 to that, so I feel like I'm, I'm really invested in this. Now he's investing his time. And now this man is not on the donkey. This man's walking alongside the donkey, and he's allowing this, this bloody man to be on the donkey. Took him to the inn or took care of him. The next day, He took out two silver coins and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. I have a couple questions to end today's talk, but I want to give you this verse first because Jesus beautifully tells this lawyer to be merciful. And it's the same thing that he told us in Luke 6.36, to be merciful just as your father is merciful. Be merciful to one another. Be merciful to yourself. Be merciful to yourself. Be compassionate for, for you. Life is hard on us all. The person you need to be the most compassionate towards at some times is you. It's you. I want to end with these four questions. And then I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to be through. If you've been challenged by some of the things that I've said and, and you're just kind of shocked and just kind of rocked to the core, welcome to my world. I am too. But I want to give you some next steps. Maybe you can work these out in community groups later this week. Maybe for you, you work this out later on in your quiet time alone with Jesus. But I invite you to do this. Go to God in prayer and ask these, one of these four questions.
Do I make or have rivals? First question. Do I make or have rivals? Am I simply trying to gain a better position in my life by being competitive with someone else? Therefore, I'm trying to justify myself. Second question, am I preoccupied with being right? The expert in the law, he was preoccupied with being right. Third question, do I live a merciful life? Do I live a merciful life? And last, is my faith producing action-oriented love? We're on it now. We've come four weeks to be at this point. If your life was to be graded off those four questions, what grade would you get? I'm so glad that God doesn't, you know, He doesn't give us a, a moral grading scale. But yet I do think it's, 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 it's good for us to be observant of questions like these because they stop us in our tracks. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. And I thank you, Lord, for the unconditional love that you poured out on us. A love that's not on a condition to, to what we know or how well we can perform, but it's, it's just a love that's unconditional as we are, not as we should be. Because you know that we're not as we should be. Lord, allow this, this message to sink deep into our hearts. And God, may the days going forward be verified that we have a healthy theology of self-concept that's producing a theology of service by how well we serve and generosity by how well we give and of justice by how well we advocate for those who are needing justice. And Lord, how well we lean into gospel community. I thank you, Jesus. You are the hero of this story. You're the hero of every story. You're the hero of our lives. Amen. Amen.